Okay, everybody, it is time for us to get started. <clears throat> Hope you had a good week since last time. Hope you had a good lunch today. Uh, we got plenty leftovers for afterwards, so if you have to run, um, we can always get a little to-go box and you can take some with you. And remember that um, we just asked you to leave tips in the tip jar here, and this goes to the people in the back that serve us each week, which we're super grateful for. Um, we are <clears throat> continuing our year-long trek through Deuteronomy with the Israelites, and we're in chapter 22 this week. Um, we looked at, we're in the section again to recap where Moses is giving Israel a, uh, he's, he's filling out the implications of the Ten Commandments for them. Remember, the Ten Commandments was their covenant constitution, basically. It was their, you know, this is how you're going to live when you get into the land. And the Ten Commandments were just, hey, basically, this is how it's going to be. But they didn't address every situation, or at least they didn't speak directly to every situation. And so Moses then, the rest of the covenant after Exodus chapter 19 and 20, was the filling out of those commandments. Okay, this is what it'll look like. And it gave examples of case laws. And that's how uh, ancient law works. It doesn't give you every single law, every single legal statute. It basically just says, these are the types of laws you're going to live by, and here's an example. And then the judges were expected to extrapolate from those examples into everyday lives, everyday life situations, rather. So, for instance, we're starting, we're, and 22 picks right up where um, the last chapter, 21, left off. And it's talking about um, these laws having to do with things like property, and it's going to have to do with things like um, basically all of the things the Ten Commandments talk about. You know, it's theft and uh, adultery and murder, and all of these things are being dealt with in this section. So it's going to say, verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1 starts off. It says, If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it but be sure to take it back to him. If your brother does not live near you, or if you don't know who he is, take it home with you and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Do not ignore it. And the Hebrew in that phrase, ignore it, literally is do not hide yourself. And I love this law, the way it's phrased, first of all, because it starts off with, if you see your neighbor's um, ox or sheep, okay? So we've talked about this before. This is an agrarian society. Oxen and your sheep, this was your livelihood and your transportation and your tractor and your, you know, uh, truck for moving things. I mean, that's what oxen, sheep were. Your sheep is your, your money, your currency, you know, where you get your wool, where you get your milk, where you get your meat. But it basically, it's saying, hey, if you see this, it belongs to your neighbors, take it back to them. There's no room in the Bible for finders keepers. That's, that's not, Israel's law was not to be finders keepers. No. You find something, take it back to your fellow Israelite. And if you don't know who it is, let's say you find an ox or a sheep, you don't know whose it is, keep it. Take care of it until they come looking for it. Now, if they never come looking for it, does that mean that you keep it in perpetuity? Yeah. Yeah. That's the law that God wants Israel to live by. He wants them to be a society that says, hey, don't ignore. When you see something missing, something lost, don't ignore it. Don't hide your... Don't say it's none of my business. Make it your business. 
and make it your business to find whose it is, or at least to take care of it until the person comes looking for it. And so he says, and do this not just with the ox or the sheep, which are kind of the big things, but do this with, and he lists the other things as well, with your brother's donkey or his cloak, and your cloak was like your garment, your outer garment, your status symbol, your, your bedding, you know, it's what you wrapped up in at night, it's also what you wore during the day, or anything he loses. So this is very much a, hey, look out for your, don't just, don't just not steal, that's, that's the minimum, alright, uh, I didn't steal, good, you shouldn't have stolen, but go beyond that and actually make things right if you see that they aren't right. You see the spirit of this law in it. And, it, and, and so ending with do not hide yourself. Don't just tuck your head and keep going. You know, we have so, so many things happen in the world today, horrible things, because of the bystander syndrome, which is you don't want to get involved. And so you see something happening and, well, that's not, that's not my business. I don't want to get involved. Because it's easier just to go about your day. You know, just go move along, stop my business. I don't want to get involved. I don't want to... And, and that is one of the things that allows horrendous things to happen in the world. Little things all the way up to big things. And so Scripture implicitly has a critique or explicitly has a critique against that mindset, especially when it comes to property that's lost, that, that somebody else needs. I mean, these are things you need. Your, your oxen, your donkey, your sheep, your cloak. These are things that are necessities. And so what God's saying is don't ignore it. Verse 4, if you see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen on the road, do not hide yourself. Help him get it to his feet. You see him struggling. This, we, don't, we don't ride oxen or donkeys today. You know, we don't have a pack animal that we are helping along. So what, what, would be, what we have to do is say, so how does this law apply to us? How many of you ever passed by somebody broken down on the side of the road? Right? Yeah, you know, like if you see that, that is, that would be perhaps an equivalent, at least stopping and saying, do you need help? Can I help? You know, now in the age of cell phones and AAA and all that stuff, it doesn't mean necessarily that you may have to get out. And of course, if you're alone and it's night and you're, you know, there's safety concerns, all that, sure. But the underlying ethics should be, do we stop to care or do we pass by on the other side? Jesus told a parable about this. And so this is important because Jesus wasn't inventing anything new. This is, this, is, this is what God wants for His people. Now, then it's going to go on into a section of these laws that have to do with, with things like mixing. And, and if you were with us for Leviticus, you saw that God has a, for Israel, there is a concern about mixing of categories, blurring of lines. And all of it had to do with teaching them concepts about holiness and about separation and about the holy versus the common, uh, the clean versus the profane, and that there were these things that they had to do. I mean, Israel would have remembered this. They had Exodus. They had Leviticus. Uh, this is for the next generation. Moses is reiterating this idea of, of separation. And so some of the things that God does not want mixed, we know why, like this next one, and some of the things we don't know why. Some of the concepts we understand, oh, that makes sense. And then some of the concepts that we look at, we're like, I don't see why that's a big deal. And remember, we have to see ourselves not as ourselves looking back at Israel's laws, but we have to actually put ourselves back in the time of Israel, coming out of Egypt, being separated from the nations that were around them, so that one day they may reach the nations 
with the gospel, with, with, with knowledge of God. In the Old Testament, it would be called Torah, and the New Testament, it would be called gospel. That was the goal, the separation for a time in order that with the coming, as we find out later, with the coming of the Messiah, that then God's world, word would go out into all the world and that all the nations that had been separate from God would be brought back to him. All the things that went wrong in Genesis would be made right uh, through the new Adam. So there's a big level picture going on, but then we come to these certain laws and they describe the type of society that Israel is going to be in. It's a society that did not mix things haphazardly or out of convenience. So it begins with <clears throat> verse uh, 5. Uh, a woman must not wear men's, and NIV says clothing, but the word is really utensils or vessels or implements. It's not the word clothing. The NIV, NIV blows it on this chapter a few times. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV, so it's not like throw your NIV out, but they just miss it a few times in this chapter. And one of these is this one. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, it, it doesn't say um, a woman must not wear man's clothing. It says... A woman must not wear man's or use man's things, implements is probably the best word that you could use. We don't know exactly what it means. We see the context here. It says, or a man wear a woman's clothing, and that actually is the word for clothing. It's not the same word here. There's two different wordings. Uh, For the Lord your God detests anyone doing this. So we look at this, and some uh, past some churches' traditions have said, so this is why women wear skirts, men wear jeans. The problem is nobody wore jeans when this was written, right? I mean, the, you, you don't tie this to any particular fashion because that changes. This isn't talking about which particular fashion you do because it would have spelled it out in more detail. What it's saying is there are things that in Israel culture were for men or men to use or characterized men there are things that characterized women in particular having to do with the dress or the the implements what they're using and so what christians will erroneously do is they take this and they go oh see that's why you know we don't wear jeans at my church if you're a woman or, or you don't cut your hair a certain length or you know there's no unisex clothing or and what we're doing is we're trying to apply the law in a one-to-one fashion and it doesn't fit because we're not ancient Israelite society. We're not ancient Near East culture. We're missing the spirit of the law. What's the spirit of the law? The spirit of the law is that in God's world, in your everyday life, He does not want this mixing, blending of genders uh, haphazardly. The, the, there are, he created male and female. That is, a, that is an aspect of God. The first poem in the entire Bible So God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Which tells us that the image of God, whatever it is, consists of this unique aspect of creation, which is male and female. That's the general thing that God does not want just flippantly and haphazardly wiped away. And so there's a theology of gender within Scripture. Now, immediately in our culture, we go, wait a minute, hold on. You know, we're in the, what about, what about trans people? What about uh, people who are born with both uh, sexual characteristics? You know, people that are intersex. They're born with the, the chromosomes of female, but the physiology of male or vice versa. Um, there, there are all kinds of things that we could, what about, what about? And Scripture may have something to say to that. In fact, later God's going to say stuff later in the prophets about the eunuch, about the person who is born a certain way uh, in terms of their gender, sexuality, and, and God will speak to issues involving that. 
But here he's laying the foundation, and the foundation is that the male-female dichotomy of humanity is a good thing because it reflects God's nature. God's not neither male nor female. God is both male and female and more. Gender is a part of who God is, but not limiting one or the other, but both reflecting his fullness. So God's not just this neuter thing up there, this, this force, right? It's not Star Wars theology. It's not a thing. It's not an it. He is both he and she. Together, male, female is the image of God. So both sexes reflect part of the image of God, and that is something that's holy and sacred and is to be preserved. It's not something that's just contrary to cultural today, you know, oh, gender is just a social construct. No, it's not. It's not. It's a, it's a specific aspect of God. Now, how it plays out in different cultures will vary. In some cultures, you know, men don't wear dresses. Men don't wear skirts. But you go to Scotland, and you're going to see some manly men wearing skirts. They call them kilts. And they'll beat you down if you step to them and tell them they have a nice skirt. Um, the point is that there are the, the specifics will change, but the innate concept of masculine and feminine not the cultural stereotypes attached to those things, but the concepts themselves represent and do reflect God's nature. And so we have to walk a fine line. We don't want to do what some Christians in the 80s and 90s started to do with the masculine man movement, you know, make manly Jesus, and, and start to create a Jesus in our own image who's like a lumberjack slash professional wrestler slash, you know, carpenter, artist, poet, knight, warrior... Well, no, he was a Galilean peasant. You know, he wasn't going to win any bodybuilding competitions. He, he didn't care if you go hunting on the weekend or if you write poetry on the weekend. That, that, that stuff doesn't make you masculine or feminine. And we, and we have to be careful of that. But we also don't want to go to the other side where we the, the divine feminine and everything masculine is toxic and everything that has to do with, with strength and virility is seen as a weakness or a sign of unintelligence or any of that. Those are cultural lies, cultural myths that get whispered into our ears and they creep into the churches. And so what we want to do is keep the fullness of God as what it is and let Him challenge our concepts of gender, of masculinity, of femininity, uh, of sexuality, of all of these things and let God continue to challenge them because they will always break our stereotypes. Uh, but the heart, the, the principle, what we want to pull out of this is that God does care that there is a differentiation between male and female. It is not a fluid thing. It's, it's not a whatever you feel like. or whatever. There, there's, a, there's a definiteness to it. And it's from this foundation that we then can approach the exceptions. You know, it's from this foundation of, okay, this is, this is the norm. This is how we are created. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. It's not oppressive to say that. Now, when we approach someone who's outside of that norm, someone who, regardless of, you know, they, they were born a certain way with a physical uh, defect or, or with physiology that doesn't match what we think of, that's when the, uh, the, the concept of pastoral care and of seeking the lost and looking at how Jesus dealt with people who were on the outskirts in his day and how he never celebrated or, or condoned behavior that was outside of God's ethic sexuality, but he always embraced and loved and welcomed the person who was created in the image of God, no matter what they were struggling with or living with. And that's a tension that we got to hold, and it's hard to hold that tension, especially in a polarized, politicized society that we live in, where everybody wants you to jump on one side or the other of this neat left-right 
divide. And I think Jesus stands there looking above both of those and says, hey, both of you are missing it. You know, this, this, is some, this person is created in my image. Love them and serve them as you would the most saintliest person you've ever met. But at the same time, everybody is fallen and everybody has desires and sins and things that, that war against their soul that they have to deny themselves and so when it comes to the behavior, when it comes to the lifestyle someone lives, be willing to be ruthless in, in clinging to the gospel and denying parts of you that are in conflict with the gospel. That, is, that, that message is anathema to both sides of the spectrum. And that's the message, though, that God in His incarnate self mimicked. But even back in law, you start to see the foundation from which that all unfolds. And so he goes on, God, we got to get through the first half of this chapter. <clears throat> he goes on, now the next law seems completely different. This just a ra- it seems so random. Verse 6, if you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go, so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. Such a weird law to come in this section. Um, but it's interesting, so that it may go well with you, so you may have a long life. This, this is, that's the promise that was attached to the commandment, if you remember the Ten Commandments, of honor your mother and father, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life or you may live long in the land. So that, this is a reflection of the honor the mother and father, the, the, the parent offspring, but it's in the context of a mother bird and her eggs or her chicklings, which is just really strange. In fact, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis in ancient times, a number of them, they called this the law of the nest and was, this was called the least of the laws. Like when they, If they ranked all 613 commandments in terms of like severity, this was literally the last. But because it had connected to it the promise that was contained within one of the Ten Commandments so that it will go well with you, what they realized from that is even the least of the laws of God are of eternal importance. And that this is just as significant as any of the other laws. And, and so they would, you know, it's this paradox that it's the least, but it shows the, the promise with it is connected with one of the greatest. And so therefore the whole of God is to be obeyed and is to be, is to be upheld, even the least law, the law of the nest. Um, just on a general ecological basis, this is just sound uh, uh, creation care. If you find a mother, if you're, now this is assuming someone in a, a food situation, you come across a nest, mama bird, baby birds, if you take them all, that's it. There's no more food source, over. Right? The birds, the eggs, whatever, they're done. Um, if you take the mama bird, you eat the mama bird, those baby birds die. That's it. It's done. It's over. So either of those things ends everything and then. If you take the babies, while well, we look at that and go, oh, that's so cruel. From, a, from a, a food perspective, from a nature perspective, that's what we do if you have chicken houses and you take the eggs, you're taking the eggs, you're taking the young, you take them, you can raise the young into their own, you can eat them, you can use their eggs, whatever. The mom stays, the food source continues. Now, this is just good care for this is what we would call like, um, you know, uh, environmental protection. When they do this with, with endangered species, you know, where they'll, they'll, um, they'll 
take out, like if there's an elephant, say, and elephants are dangerous when they're older bulls because they try to keep um, asserting themselves over the younger bulls so that they can maintain their dominance. Well, even in their past uh, good breeding age, they still are killing off all these younger bulls. So their conservationists will actually go in and say, okay, this elephant actually needs to be taken out. And so they'll call that elephant. They'll, you know, let a hunter, you can shoot that elephant and take it. But what that does is that then lets the younger, younger ones come up and it lets the population as a whole thrive. So it's just this interesting, is that why God made this law? I don't know, probably, maybe not, but maybe. Um, but it's an interesting aspect to this least of the laws in Scripture, the law of the nest, is, hey, don't, don't gorge yourself on the resources. Save some for later. Use the land, but don't destroy the land. You know, use the animals, but don't destroy the animals. Have dominion over means to rule over wisely. And that's something that Christians and throughout history you know, have done good sometimes and not done good sometimes. But the goal is use creation. God does give it to us to use. But use it wisely because we don't own it. Take care of it. Example, you know, if I give Carolyn the keys to my car and I say, hey, I'm going to be back in a week. Here's my car. You can do use what you want. You know, use it to haul stuff. Do what you want with it. I'm hoping that when I get back in the week, I'll get my car back and it will be in at least as good a shape as I left it. Maybe a little wear and tear, you know, but, but at least she'll put gas in the tank or something, right? That, that's what God is doing to us with the earth. If I give it to her and say, here, I'm going to use my car for a week. I'll be back for it. And she goes and she enters it into a demolition derby or she starts hauling manure in it or she, you know, what, takes it apart and sells it for scrap. That's not taking care of my car. That's destroying the thing I entrusted her with. That's the image of us in the earth. Are we destroyers of the earth or are we caretakers of the earth? So again, I've said it before, no matter what politics will tell you, environmentalism is not inherently anti-gospel. In fact, it is inherently part of the gospel. That doesn't mean you go off from far left and start hugging trees and worshiping nature and doing, you know, but it does mean that you at least listen to those voices and those concerns and say, how can, I, how can we be on the same page in a way that for me honors the creator without deifying the creation. And if I can find that, that's where a biblical ethic of creation care will start to develop. Uh, let's look at a few more before we move on. Verse 8, when you build a new house, make a parapet. That's a, a little safety railing. Make a parapet around the roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. So here again, ancient Near East, the houses... Don't just forget your house, okay? Your house is better than palaces in the ancient Near East. Even if you live in the most rundown shack, the, an old trailer, or, you know, like in the heart of the ghetto, wherever you're living, if you've got running water and air conditioning, you are living better than kings in the ancient world in many respects. Um, but in Israel, in the agrarian society, you build a house, and usually they were two-story houses. The bottom story, the bottom floor, sometimes dug into the ground or out of the side of the hill, that's where your animals would stay. You know, that's where the manger would be. That's where the guest room or the room for travelers or whatever. That was just kind of your ground floor. That's where you kept things so you didn't, they didn't die in the heat or in the cold. The next, the floor above is where your family stayed, where you and your family stayed. It's where you lived. And there was no glass 
There was no climate controlled. You know, these, these, were, these were houses built of stone, wood, mud. Uh, you know, some could be pretty sophisticated, but they were still, at the end of the day, built of these basic elements. And that's where you would stay for warmth in the winter or coolness in the summer. But sometimes that, you know, I mean, you don't want to just sit in an enclosed place. So the top floor of these houses were flat. The roof was flat, and that's where you would go for things like meals together, entertaining guests, having people over. It was on the roof. So what this is saying is, hey, when you're building your houses, when you're living, put a safety rail around your roof. Because if somebody falls off, it's not their fault. It's your fault if you don't have a safety rail. And it's just, just the example that God said. Uh, do, so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. There's, there's something in here about God wanting us saying, no, this is your area, your domain, your house. It should be a place of safety, and it should be a place of joy. It should not be a place of death or bloodshed. And so, yes, accidents happen. What God is saying is, though, mitigate those accidents. Put a safety railing. Don't just say, well, I told them not to go on the roof and they fell and died. It's their fault. You know, that, that's not the attitude of God's people. But rather, do what's reasonable and what you're able to make your space safe when people enter it so that your house doesn't become guilty of bloodshed. And again, there's, there's so many ways we could extrapolate from this. But what the law doesn't say is, it doesn't say every situation that we would think of in terms of safety. You know, there, there are many ways people could die accidentally in your home uh, but this is giving an example and from the example then people would extrapolate from it so if somebody dug a pit next to a playground and didn't build a fence around it this law the judges in Israel would say this you're breaking the law even though there's no house or parapet or anything it's like no the spirit of the law you're breaking it and that's how ancient law would work so it's the 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 theme within it is take care, be careful, do your due diligence to protect those who have come within your sphere of influence. Uh, again, how this works in different situations, the examples could be limitless. But uh, these last couple we'll look at. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops, uh, if you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be and the NIV again says defiled, but it's not the word defiled. The word is kadosh, it's made holy or dedicated. It's, it's actually the opposite of defiled. I don't, I don't know exactly why they translate it that way here. But what this is saying is what God tells, now we know in Egypt they would practice farming where they would plant like you'd have a row of palms and then a row of dates and then a row of palms in order to get every last bit of the soil. And sometimes they would call intercrop planting. And what God's, and some, you know, some, maybe there was some ritual significance to it. Uh, we don't know. But we just know that what God's telling Israel is you're not going to do that. You're going to have, if this is a field, it's going to be a field of one crop. Uh, and fields, again, don't think like fields out in the country here in America with combines and uh, center pivot irrigation and all of that. No, a field is like a field the size of this dining hall would be a pretty standard field. Uh, some of the fields were even smaller than this because it was a terraced landscape. And so you can look at pictures today of Israel and look at fields. They're like what we're here. This is a field. So we don't want to intermix all our crops in this one field. No, this is going to be for a vineyard. 
and then the field over there down the hill or the field over there, that'll be for wheat and that'll be for barley. Again, is it arbitrary? It may be seen that way to us. Do we know exactly why God says it? No, but we know that this carries the theme of Leviticus, which is the mixing of different kinds of things Israel is not going to do. They're going to be visibly different from the way they plant their crops to the types of clothing they wear to the types of food they eat. They're going to be different. And that difference then is going to set them apart physically from the people who they dwell among. In the New Testament, that difference will become transformed through the New Covenant into a spiritual difference, a holiness difference, where we will live differently without being physically separated any longer as Jews and Gentiles. So this law then, the the purpose of this law, becomes transformed through the New Testament. Uh, But we're a long way from there, and we're almost out of time. So again, in the same vein, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together, Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together and make tassels on the four corners of the cloak that you wear. So again, these laws, mixing of things, don't do it, don't do it. Uh, We have to see the bigger picture of Scripture to see why God commanded this rather than this looking at these laws atomistically. So if you weren't here for Leviticus two years ago, Catch the video we record every week. Listen to the podcast. You can, we talked a lot about the mixing and what God's trying to teach. Remember, Israel's society was to be basically like a children's story, like a sermon object lesson to the rest of the world watching. They were to be a living microcosm of the kingdom of God and to be different and in ways that we don't get the full implications of today many times because we don't live in these types of societies. But that's the key to take away. God wanted his people to be different in all aspects of life and even down to the clothes that they wore. And as a reminder of this, he tells them, and this is repeated, this was back in Numbers 15, for those of you who were here last year, he, he said, you know, make these tassels and they're going to go on the fringe of your garment, the kanaf, the wing of your garment, the edge. And these tassels are going to remind you, we know from Numbers 15, this is just again the reminder for this next generation, The tassels are going to remind you of these laws and remind you of who you are as God's people. So WWYD, what would Yahweh do? All right, it's kind of like that. You look at the tassel, you're reminded, this is I'm a covenant people, even down to the clothing that I wear. I'm a covenant person. So next week, we're going to look at the, the laws are going to shift into laws that reflect the commandment about adultery and about family and marriage. And it's going to be, next week you'll see a major case of where I do think the NIV really does you a disservice if it's all you're reading because they, they, they translate a word that's just not correct and gives a really bad impression of the text. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You have to come back next week for that. So we're out of time. Uh, there's seconds left. If you want some, there's some containers in the back. We'll get them to bring them out. I hope you're telling people about the study. I hope you're inviting people, your workers, your coworkers, your friends. Let's keep packing this place out, and uh, we'll see you next week.